0: got a treat for you this morning. I'm going to have a guest speaker. My friend Joe Carey is going to be here. He's got an amazing uh, ministry. I'll just give you a brief overview. He has a a ministry to Muslims. And uh, not only does he witness to Muslims and he's had an opportunity to lead many Muslims to Christ, he's also got a unique ministry to the church, to the Christians. Because if you're anything like I am, you can be kind of, uh, well, you don't really know how to interact with the Muslim. Especially if you run across somebody who's wearing the full Muslim you know, clothing and, and all those kinds of things, you're not sure what to say. You, you, well, you're just wondering, are they a terrorist? You know, or are they going to kill me? Or you you kind of wonder all these things. And and Joe has found a great opportunity to to come educate us a little bit about what Muslims believe, how we can effectively minister to them, you know, where we are, how we got to where we are in the country. He's got a lot of things that he wants to share. I'm not sure what he's going to share this morning. Hopefully I'm not, you know, hopefully I'm going in the right direction here. But he's got a great ministry where he just kind of opens our eyes to a little bit about what's going on. And uh, it it helps, it help after speaking with guys like him and it educates you on, because, you know, you don't, we're out here in Western Maryland, but you don't know when the next Muslim neighbor will move in next to you. And you don't know when you'll have an opportunity to affect them for Christ. And, and rather than be pushing them away and being afraid of them, you know, Joe's going to kind of hopefully share some things that will help us understand what's going on and we can effectively minister to them. So, with all of that said, I'm going to bring uh, Joe up. And uh, I know he's got some good stuff for us today. And uh, I'm always blessed to hear him. So come
1: on up, Joe. Oh, goodness, it's great to be back here. I don't know how many of you were here last year. I was here about this time last year. Um, some of you may remember. And what I'm going to be talking about this morning is a little bit of a, uh, a follow-up to that. Oh, cap, take caps lock off. A little bit of a follow-up to the message I gave last year. Now, if you remember, last year I gave a kind of an introductory message I called Introduction to Islam and Muslim Evangelism. And uh, I answered three questions. What is Islam? Who is Allah? And what is the Christian response? Because we have a great opportunity in this nation. Um, I, th- I think I shared a few statistics last time, like the fact that um, Samuel Zwamer, one of the early pioneers of missions to Muslims, made this observation over a 100 years ago in 1909. Samuel Zwamer has, has, is a prolific, was a prolific minister in the Middle East, and he's, he's written dozens and dozens of books about ministering to Muslims. But he made this observation. He said, one might suppose the church thought the Great Commission did not apply to Muslims. And I think he's right. You know, we, we as the church have, have, by and large, sent missionaries to the, you know, the jungles of the Amazon in Brazil and, and the outbacks of Australia. But by and large, we failed to go into, the, into the, the Middle East, into the Muslim world. And so perhaps maybe that's one reason why God's bringing them to us now. Ever, have you ever thought about that? They, they have, we, we, we failed to go to them. So God's bringing them here because this is the only opportunity they may ever have to hear the gospel and they can take it back to their, to their nations. They can take it back to their homelands and share it with their relatives over there. So I talked about that last time. I'm not going to talk about that this morning. I'm going to do kind of a follow up to that. But before I get there, I want to talk about some resources we have out there at the table. We had these last year. So if you picked up a set last year, it's the same thing, but this is 20 hours of training on everything you want to know about Islam. Probably a lot of stuff you don't want to know either. And I've actually been told by a former Muslim um, who came to Texas a couple of years ago with me to do an outreach on one of the university campuses there. He says, by the time you go through this material, material you will know more about Islam than 90% of the world's Muslims. And I've actually found that to be true as, as I've talked with them you know, in my personal interactions with them. A lot of Muslims, many Muslims, don't know what their religion teaches. They don't read the Quran. They don't read Muhammad's biography. They don't read the earliest sources. Now, don't we kind of have that same problem in Christianity too? There's a lot of people that claim to be Christian, but they don't know a lot about Christianity. So Islam has the same problem. Um, so we make these available to you. They're at the table, um, free of charge. If you can help with the donation, that's great because, you know, we got to buy the raw materials, but we're not here to make money to sell them. Um, so if, if you're interested... Take one, and please only take one if you're really interested in going through it. And and once you've gone through it, share it with your friends, share it with your neighbors, pass it around. Um, That's why we're here. We're here to equip you um, to spread the gospel with Muslims. All right. Um, This morning, last time I I mentioned I I talked to you about how we can witness to Muslims. Today I'm going to take a little bit of a turn and, and talk about why we should be doing that. And I've called this message, this particular message, Islam in the last days. What role will Islam play in the future? And this is really a call to action. And I'm going to give you some action items at the end of the message today. I'm I'm going to give you some homework. So be ready to take notes. Um, I do want to set the stage for you, though, because some of the some of the material I'm going to be sharing with you today um, kind of tends to be negative, sounds negative. But listen, I want to share with you the reality of what's happening in the world. Because we have no greater opportunity than Christians today to share the gospel. And I'm going to give you some reasons why we should be doing that. Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I love the sound of pages turning. There are many churches in, in the U.S. today where people don't bring their Bibles to church because they don't really use the Bible. So I love to hear that sound. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, if you're familiar, if you've done any any studies in uh, eschatology, the study of the last days, the study of the end times, you you recognize this passage of Scripture as one that that speaks about a a person to be revealed in the end times that we know as the Antichrist. He's going to set himself up in the temple. He's going to present himself with God. He's going to do miraculous deeds. He's going to deceive many. But what I want to focus on this morning is before that Antichrist is revealed... What happens? What are the signs that the, that the, that the revelation, the rebe- revealing of the Antichrist is just around the corner? Look back at verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, what day? The day that the Antichrist is revealed, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. What's falling away? What does the falling away look like? What, what's Paul talking about here? I want to ask the question Has the falling away already begun? Yes. Absolutely. I'm going to talk about this morning. I'm, I'm going to throw some facts and figures out to you. Um, but here's the cool thing. If the falling away has, has already begun, if it's in full swing, what's that mean? What's right around the corner? The rapture of the church. The Antichrist is going to be revealed. We're going to be out of here. So even though some of this may sound like bad news this morning, it's actually cool news. It's good news. But we've got, we've got some work to do. I want to focus on what the, what the falling away looks like, and I'm going to sp- specifically talk about what it looks like in terms of Islam and Christianity in the world today. First thing I want to focus on is the decline of Christianity in Europe and the USA, part of the great falling away. Is Christianity on the decline? Absolutely. Let me just, let me just cite a few facts and figures. Um, according to a 2010 report con- con- conducted by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, q Form, big polling organization, research organization. From 1910 to 2010, the world population grew from 1.8 billion to 6.9 billion. But during that period, while the world population was growing, Christianity on the whole shrank around the world. So this has been well underway for 100 years and it is accelerating more and more as we go on. Every time I give this message to a church, I update it because world events are happening so rapidly. Christianity on the whole is declining. Uh, Just a more recent comparison, a recent census from the UK from 2001 to 2011 over a 10 year period, the number of those who claim no religious affiliation rose by more than 55%. From 7.7 million in 2001 to 14.1 million in 2011. During the same period, the number of those claiming a Christian affiliation in the UK shrank by over 4 million people. And interestingly enough, during the same period, while Christianity was shrinking in the UK, the number of Muslims in the UK grew grew by over 75%. That's kind of shocking, isn't it? What do we see going on around the world? Um... According to the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, church attendance in France, Sweden, and the Netherlands is at less than 10%. Yeah, I heard that. Oh, that's, 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 that's my heart. What is going on? Let me suggest to you something that maybe you haven't considered. We've kicked God out of our culture, right? By and large, in the UK, in the United States, but when that happens it creates a spiritual vacuum something has come in to fill that vacuum mm. think about that for a moment i'm going to well, i'm going to talk more about that in a moment according to a usa today report one of the most striking consequences of the decline in christianity in europe has been fewer children the reproduction rate has declined among christian households as the reporter explains he says the birth rate throughout much of western europe has fallen so drastically that the population in many countries is shrinking. The biggest single consequence of the declining role of the church is the huge decline in fertility rates, according to the USA Today, a secular newspaper organization. I'm, I'm gonna talk more about that shortly, that what, what the declining birth rate looks like and what that's resulting in. Number two, in, the, in Europe and in the USA, churches are closing and being turned into mosques. Surprisingly enough, in Germany, for example, over the last 10 years, 515 Roman Catholic churches, 340 Protestant churches in Germany have closed due to low attendance. At the same time, the number of mosques in Germany has grown, many of them from taking possession of abandoned churches. Germany now boasts over 200 mosques, 40 of them designated as mega mosques that can accommodate more than 1,000 worshipers on any given Friday afternoon when Muslims have their communal, communal worships. In Britain, since 1960, close to 14,000 churches have closed. In contrast, there are now more than 1,700 mosques in Britain alone, and the number is growing daily. Interestingly enough, um, many years ago, in my former church in California before we moved to Texas, I was involved, I actually went on a short-term mission trip to Britain, to, to London. Can you imagine that? And I'm thinking, why, why, why is America sending missionaries to the heart of, of, of Europe, to London? We went over there, and I found out when we got there. I've been—I got to be honest with you, I've been on many, many short-term mission trips to various parts of the world. And that trip, that particular trip into London, was one of the most difficult missionary trips I've been on. Because London, the UK, much of Europe, has expelled God from the culture. We were spat upon, we were mocked in the public square, people tried to pick fights with us simply for preaching the gospel in public. It was difficult. church is being converted to mosques in the UK. But it's not just limited to the UK. It's here in the United States as well. In late 2006, St. Matthew's Catholic Church in Indian Orchard, Massachusetts. Listen to this. This is, this, is, this is interesting. The church was sold to a group of Muslims who wanted to turn it into a mosque. The church's parishioners approved of the sale because they wanted to ensure that the building remained a, quote, house of worship. Oh, yeah. Incredible. In August 2015, Holy Trinity Church in Syracuse, New York closed its doors and was sold to a group of Muslims who turned it into a mosque and raised funds to have all the crosses removed from the, from the um, outside exterior of the church. And the church had been a landmark for over 100 years. It was a historical building. So churches are on a decline while Islam is on a rise. We have kicked God out of our culture and something is coming to fill that vacuum. We have a lot of work ahead of us, folks. I'm going to give you some homework. Keep, keep your ears tuned. I want to talk about Chrislam. How many, how many of you are familiar with the term Chrislam? Ever heard of it? The kind of the blending of Christianity and Islam. Yeah, I see some of you shaking your head. This is another example of what I call the falling way that Paul's talking about here. The falling way. Chrislam, the big ecumenical movement, blending all the different world religions. So eventually the Antichrist is going to bring on the one world religion, right? I think we see the beginnings of that today in Chrislam. And the current Pope of the Catholic Church is, is really getting involved in, in becoming very friendly toward Islam. Much of Islam was, the beginnings of that actually came from, it, it's been happening for quite a while, but it really began to accelerate in late 2007, early 2008, almost, a little over nine years ago when a group of 138 Muslim scholars from a broad spectrum of Islamic belief, everything from Sunni to Shia to everything in between, came together and penned a letter to Christian leaders worldwide known as the Common Word. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You can actually go online, Google the Common Word. There's actually a website dedicated to this whole issue called acommonword.com. And these 138 senior Islamic scholars addressed this letter... To all Christian leaders worldwide, beginning with the Pope of the time, to all the Eastern Orthodox bishops, the Russian Orthodox bishops, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury in, in the UK, trickled down and all. And finally, the last addressee to the letter was to Christian leaders worldwide, to all pastors of all Christian churches. Now, I doubt if Pastor Rob got a personal copy, but, but, but that was the intent. And the basis of the common word letter was that we Muslims. Require, we're asking you we're reaching out to you christians as an olive branch to set aside our differences and come together on the things that we hold in common the love of god and the love of neighbor and that was the basis of the common word letter there was a christian response penned by the scholars at yale divinity school who responded to this letter and said, yes, we agree with you, Muslim scholars. We need to come together. We need to set aside our differences and come together in what we hold in common, love of God, love of neighbor. And this letter was then signed onto and agreed to by over 300 senior leaders from around the Christian world within the United States. They they agreed with this idea. Let me just read you some of the signatories of that letter. Um, Leif Anderson, president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Bill Heibel, senior pastor at Willow Creek Community Church. Greg Livingstone, founder of the Frontiers Mission Organization. Um, Richard Moual, president of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. David Neff, editor in chief and vice president of Christianity Today. Over 300 senior leaders, top leaders, signed on to this agreement with Muslims to set aside our differences. This This is frightening. Because this whole issue has become the basis of what we see Chris Lam happening today. Remember the words, hold, come together on what we hold in common. And I'm going to refer to, back to that in a moment. I don't have time to dissect the letter for you, but let me just tell you, this letter was crafted very, very um, craftily. It was penned very craftily. It was, very, it, was very, it was a secret invitation, it was a hidden invitation for Christians, Christians worldwide to acknowledge that there's only one God. His name is Allah. He has no partners. And it was a call for Christians worldwide to embrace monotheistic theology. Islam, Islamic monotheism. There's only one God worthy of worship. And these, lead, these Christian leaders in the United States had no idea what they were agreeing to and what they were signing on to. Another issue that we see re- relating to Islam is Christian churches are opening their doors to Muslim worshipers. In Scotland, a few years back, um, St. James Episcopal Church in Aberdeen became the first church in that nation to open its doors to Muslim worshippers. The nearby mosque had outgrown its capacity. Uh, the pastor of that church saw Muslims praying out in the street because they, they, over, they, they didn't have enough room in their building to accommodate Friday prayers. He saw Muslims praying in the rain and wanted to do something about it. Listen listen to this. He says, my job, he said, the Bible teaches us how we should treat our neighbors. Love of neighbor. Love of God, love of neighbor. He said, praying is never wrong. My job is to encourage people to pray. And so he allowed Muslim worshipers to come into his congregation, to to his building, to conduct their Friday prayers. I have to be honest with you. I... I have, I I would not want to be in that pastor's shoes standing before God on judgment day and said, with God asking him, did you forget the very first commandment? Thou shall have no other gods before me. Because let me be very clear, the God of Islam is not the God of Christianity. I talked about that last time. We do not worship the same God. A Fox News article in 2011 noted that Heart Song Church in Cordova, Tennessee, let members of the Memphis Islamic Center hold Ramadan prayers at the church. December 2016, for the first time in 700 years, Islamic songs resonated from Florence's cathedral, the church of Santa Maria del Fiore, which was part of an interfaith initiative begun a week after the deadly Islamist Islamist terrorist attacks in Paris. In June 2016, just middle of last year, Presbyterian Church USA kicked off its General Assembly meeting with these words. Listen to this. This was the opening invocation to the PCUSA General Assembly. In the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful, let us praise the Lord. Peace be upon them and peace be upon Allah. Allah, bless us, bless our families, and bless our Lord. Lead us on the straight path, the path of all the prophets. Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. In a Christian church. What in the world is going on? Has the great falling away begun? I have to tell you, it's sprinting down the road. <sighs> January 21st, 2017, I'm skipping through a lot of material here because I've, I've got so much to cover. I could talk about this, this topic for two hours, but I don't want to bore you guys to death. Not ah, it's not boring. Okay, good. I'd love to hear that. In January 1st, January 21st, 2017, just a couple months ago, the Minneapolis chapter of the Council of American Islamic Relations, CARE, Minneapolis chapter, opened new offices in a section of Bethany Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. Now, if you know anything about CARE, the Council of American-Islamic Relations, they were identified as a co-conspirator in the largest trial of terrorist funding in January 2008 during the FBI trial of the Holy Land Foundation for Relief and Development in in Texas, in Dallas. CARE was identified as a co-conspirator for the Holy Land Foundation, which was collecting charitable money from mosques around the country and funneling it to Hamas, and giving Hamas the money they needed to launch missiles into Israel. CARE is part of that organization. Bethany Lutheran Church in Minneapolis just gave CARE an office to run their organization with in, in Minneapolis. The Reverend Mike Mattson, president of Bethany Lutheran Church. Now, I've mentioned Episcopals, I've mentioned Bethany. I'm, I'm not picking on any particular denomination. This issue is covers a broad range of Christianity. Reverend Mike Masson, president of Bethany Lutheran, said the congregation has parishioners from across the political spectrum and strives to be open and willing to come to the middle where it's messy, but safely and with integrity. Wow. Wow. January 2017, again, just a couple months ago, in Australia, Gosford Anglican Church in Australia, had a marquee, like many churches do, they, have a, they had a marquee on, on, near the roadway in front of their church, and they wrote on the marquee, in Arabic, may the blessing, peace, and mercy of Allah be upon you. They did that in solidarity, in solidarity with Muslims who were anxious about President Trump's temporary immigrant ban. In February 2014, or February 2017, just a couple months ago, there was a protest in New York City, and one young lady was, was was taking a picture, I've got it on my Facebook page, holding a sign that says, I'm a Christian, and I love the Quran. Smiling while she said it. What's going on? I, t- I mentioned mo- a moment ago, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. I mentioned a moment ago that according to USA Today, one of the consequences of the decline of Christianity in Europe has been a decline in fertility rates. Let me talk about what that looks like briefly. According to statisticians, according to de- demographers, people who study demographics, in order for any society to maintain an equilibrium of that population, there has to be a, a minimum of 2.1 children per household on average to account for you know, premature deaths or disease or something like that. So essentially, mom and dad have to reproduce themselves through two other children in order for a, a population to maintain equilibrium. In France, what the USA was talking, USA Today report was talking about. In France, the current fertility rate is 1.8. The UK is 1.6. In Greece, the fertility rate is 1.3. Germany is 1.3 as well. In Italy, it's 1.2, and in Spain, it's 1.1. So the populations of those countries are not maintaining equilibrium. But interestingly enough the overall population of the nations are not declining. Something coming in to balance the things out. Most of those are Muslim immigrants from the Middle East. In France, I said the the fertility rate among the population, native population of France is 1.8, but among the Muslim population in France, the fertility rate is 8.1. 8.1. See, Islam is growing mainly by reproductive rates. What's that say for you that are still a child of childbearing age? You guys need to have more kids. <laughs> we need to get busy. Come on, start practicing. <laughs> Interestingly enough, in Belgium, 25% of the population and 50% of all newborns are from Muslim households. In the Netherlands, 50% of newborn babies are from Muslim homes. Southern France now boasts, boasts more mosques than churches. And I think we've seen the result of that in what's going on in southern France. We've got work to do. Another issue that we see going on around the world is the criminalization of any criticism of Islam. How many of you are aware of that? Canada recently passed a resolution that doesn't have the force of law yet. But it's being debated in Parliament up there that will criminalize any criticism of Islam and make it a crime in Canada to critique Muhammad, critique the Quran, critique Islam in any fashion. Which means basically what I do would become illegal. I spoke at a church in Canada when I was up in this area a couple years ago. Why is that important? Because don't... Aren't, aren't we commanded in the Bible, as part of our Christian belief, as part of our Christian faith, to come against all false ideologies, to come against all false gods? The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 3 to 5, he says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We're to come against everything, we're, we're to argue against everything that comes against the knowledge of God and bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We're to expose false ideologies. We're to expose false doctrines. We're to warn people who are trapped in these systems that they've got the wrong God, they've got the wrong message, and they're on a path to hell. And we, want, we need to reach out to them in love. But when it comes to doing that regarding Islam and Muslims in many parts of the world, it's becoming criminal for us to say anything negative against Islam, against Muhammad, against the Quran. I critique, I critique the Quran. I critique Muhammad in this video series. Because Muslims are the greatest victims of the lies of Islam. They've been lied to. And they don't even realize it. Muhammad was not a prophet of God. The Quran is not the word of God. And we need to expose those things for the lies that they are. But sadly, that's becoming criminal activity. In Belfast, Northern Ireland, just a couple years ago, in... uh, 2014, 78-year-old Pastor James McConnell was accused of committing a crime because he broadcast a sermon on the internet and he fell afoul of Ireland's Communications Act of 2003 which prohibits causing a grossly offensive message sent by means of public electronic communications network. What was Pastor McConnell's crime in Northern Ireland? He described Islam as heathen and satanic and a doctrine spawned in hell,
0: <laughs>
1: which it is. And I say the same thing every time I do my introduction to Islam. I say the same thing on this video series. Even Muhammad, when he had his first revelation by, by this entity he thought was the angel Gabriel, went home to his wife Khadijah and said, Woe is me, poet or possessed. He thought he was demonically possessed and he struggled with that many times in his life threatened to commit suicide so that he could resolve himself and, 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 and get rid of this angst of the thought of being per, perhaps demonically possessed. So for the, for, for the simple crime of describing Islam as heathen, satanic, and a doctrine spawned in hell, Pastor James McConnell in Belfast, Northern Ireland, fought a two-year legal battle, spending hundreds and hundreds of hours in courtrooms and spending tens of thousands of dollars in his own defense. And he was only acquitted in January 2016. It's becoming difficult to expose the lie. How many of you guys are aware what happened just in October 2016 with the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO? They made a proclamation that the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is exclusively Islamic. The Temple Mount in Jerusalem has no historical connections to Judaism and Christianity, and is simply an Islamic holy site. Now, Muslims will, will tell you that, that the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is the third holiest site in Islam, after Mecca and Medina. Mecca, the Kaaba, the big cube that you guys have probably seen pictures of, where Muslims, once, at least once in their lifetime, have to take the pilgrimage to Mecca, and they go through several ritualistic um, things there to, to balance out their scales, so they can win Allah's favor. Mecca is the first holiest site in Islam. Medina, where, where Muhammad is buried, Muhammad's tomb is there today. That's the, the prophet's mosque, Muhammad's mosque is in Medina, is the second holiest site in Islam. But according to Islam, the Temple Mount is the third holiest site in Islam. UNESCO, United Nations, or the United Nothing, as I prefer to call them, has said that the Temple Mount in Jerusalem has nothing, no historical connections to Judaism, no historical connections to Christianity, and is solely a historical Islamic significant religious site. Here's the problem. UNESCO is completely back. They're they're supposed to be a scientific and, and cultural organization. It's supposed to be an educational organization, right? They've got their history completely backwards with regard to this issue. Because the the religious significance, the historical significance, the historical connection between Judaism and the Temple Mount is without question historically. Yet for UNESCO to claim that the Temple Mount has historical connections to Islam is problematic, to say the least. Here's why. Let me give you a little background about the, the, the connection between Islam and the Temple Mount. It's based on a fabrication. Supposedly one night Muhammad had, had a dream or had a vision. Many people, people believe Muhammad actually took a journey according to Islamic sources, Muhammad took a journey. He was, he was awoken in, in, in the middle of the night in Mecca by, an, by a, a, a being, this kind of a, a hybrid animal had the, had the body of a donkey, the, the face of a human, had wings, so it was a flying donkey, and it's, it was called Barak. And Muhammad was awoken, put on the back of Barak, and, and flown to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem from Mecca in the span of one night. He was deposited on the Temple Mount, a ladder comes down out of heaven, Muhammad climbs up through the seven different levels of heaven, he gets to the top level of heaven and talks to Allah. And Allah tells Muhammad, command your people to pray to me five times a day. That's where the 5 daily prayers come from, based on this particular story, this incident. It's called the mirage in Islamic history. So Muhammad comes back down the ladder, gets back on Barak, goes back to Mecca. Here's the historical problematic connection with that. According to all Islamic scholars, the place on the Temple Mount where Muhammad was deposited was the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Masjid Al-Aqsa if you've ever, ever been to the Temple Mount, if you've ever been to Israel, you, you, you're all familiar with the big Dome of the Rock, the, the, the big um, edifice that has the golden dome on it. That's what everybody re- recognizes. Off to the left of that, if, if you're looking at the Dome of the Rock from the Mount of Olives, off to the left of that, and behind it slightly, is a smaller dome, a grayish dome, of building. That's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's said that in 620 A.D., when this incident happened in Muhammad's life, Muhammad was taken and put at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that's when the ladder from heaven came down. This is why Muslims attribute religious significance to the Temple Mount. Here's the problem. The Al-Aqsa Mosque didn't exist in 620. The Al-Aqsa Mosque wasn't built until 712 AD by the Caliph Abd al-Malik. So how could Muhammad have been deposited on the Temple Mount at the Al-Aqsa Mosque when the Al-Aqsa Mosque did not exist? The story is nothing more than legend. It's a fable. There's no historical validity to it. It is inaccurate. Yet, because because Muslims believe the story was, was an actual account, UNESCO says the Temple Mount is exclusively an Islamic holy site. Nothing to do with Judaism. Can you believe that? All right, let's come back to reality. You still open to Second Thessalonians chapter two? Let's go back to our Bibles. Jump down to verse nine. Verse nine, Paul talks about he says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. For this reason, God will send the strong delusion. I want to suggest to you that, that perhaps the lie that Paul's talking about here is in great part Islam? Why do I say that? Because fully 25% of the world's population today are believing the lie and they are in a path to hell. They've been deluded. They've been deceived. And they don't even recognize it. Now we know in context the lie that Paul's talking about here is the great lie that the Antichrist will reveal when he starts performing miracles. But I want to suggest part of that is already underway today. There's a great deception that has come upon the world, and it's called Islam. When I started studying Islam academically at Biola, when I was studying for my master's degree in apologetics, this is one thing that God impressed upon me. Islam is the greatest lie that has ever been perpetrated upon mankind. And it is part of the great great lie that is signaling the last days. those who have studied Islam understand that like any other world religion, Islam stands alone in contradiction to everything the Bible teaches. You probably you probably never seen too many guys like me who walk into a church with a Bible in one hand and a Quran in the other. Makes me kind of a unique guy. But I do this because I want to expose the lies of Islam. See, Muslims claim the, the Quran to be the word of God. We know the Bible's the word of God. But can something and its opposite be true at the same time? That, con- that, that contradicts a, a basic law of logic. Something cannot be true and the opposite of it cannot be true at the same time. A, a, a piece of paper cannot be black and white at the same time. So two things that are contradictory to one another cannot po- both be true. Islam stands in direct contradiction to everything the Bible teaches. Islam says, for, for example, Jesus was not crucified. We know he was Islam says you can get to heaven based on your own good works. The Bible says our good works do do nothing for us. And in every foundational doctrinal issue, Islam stands in direct contradiction to the Bible. The lie. This is the lie Paul's talking about, I believe, at least in part. The great lie. Many today are being deceived by the lie, even within the church. I I talked about some of the examples of of Chris Islam. Churches opening the doors of Muslim worshipers. The decline of Christianity. What are we to do about this? What's the Christian response? Here's where we're going to get down to practical, practical application. What should we be doing? It's interesting. When I was, when I was preparing this message some months ago, um, somebody posted on my Facebook page, and I, I love when God orchestrates little things like this, and I had to in, incorporate this, th- that note into my, into my message here. And he said this. While the church is waiting for Jesus to come down, he is waiting for the church to stand up. Wow. While the church is waiting for Jesus to come down, he's waiting for the church to stand up. It is time for us to stand up. It is time for us to rise to the occasion. I'm going to give you three things that we need to be doing. Number one, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you would. Second Timothy chapter four. I know many of you are familiar with this passage. But Paul writes to his protege, his disciple Timothy. He says, beginning in verse one, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and dead at his at, at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince. Rebuke. Exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. What's that sound like? Is that today? The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn away their ears from the truth. And be turned aside to fables. But you... But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What are we to be doing? Number one, we're to be preaching the word. Preach the word. Because the Bible is the only thing that's going to make a positive living impact on our society. We need to get back to the word. We need to get back to the foundations of Christianity. Christianity. And I thank God that that's one of the hallmarks of Calvary Chapels, that, that we go through the Bible, chapter, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, expounding it, and I know that's what Pastor Rob does, but there, sadly there are many churches in America today and in Europe that have forsaken that. They've gotten away from that. I was in uh, Detroit, in the Detroit area, a few months ago, um, doing a, a series of TV shows for a week, there's a, 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 a satellite TV station there that I work with quite often called ABN. They have a Trinity channel. And they broadcast into the, into the Middle East and they reach the Muslim population that I'm interested in reaching. And we, I was there for a, a week long doing a, a series of apologetics TV shows that were satellite broadcast into the Middle East. But the very first show we, we did that night had nothing to do with apologetics. Had nothing to do with Islam that week. It had to do with this issue. And we called it false gospels and empty promises and we exposed we named names we exposed preachers who have forsaken preaching the word people like joel osteen creflo dollar joyce meyer these people who just say you know if if you have enough faith you're going to wear a rolex and you're going to drive a rolls royce and god's going to give you a 65 million dollar jet so you can do your ministry Sadly, there are many churches today that are not preaching the word, and that's, that's, that's one, of the thing, one, of, one of the greatest um, reasons why we have seen such a decline in Christianity in here and in Europe. We've lost our first love. We need to preach the word. Number two, look down at verse 5 in 2 Timothy. What, what's, what's Paul say to Timothy? But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. What's that mean? Sometimes that means exposing false doctrines. Sometimes that means exposing the lies that are being perpetrated upon mankind. Not just regarding Islam, but regarding the world in general. Coming against those who say there is no God. How do you respond to that? Coming against those who say, you can't trust the Bible, it's been, become corrupted. We need to know our material, we need to know our apologetics, we need to know our theology. We need to expose the lies. We need to be doing the work of an evangelist. You're all familiar with the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. I'll just read it for you. You don't have to turn there, because I'm sure you have it memorized. It says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now we know that to be the Great Commission. Do the work of an evangelist. Here's our calling. But I want to ask a question. I want to, to get you thinking about this. I always like asking, when I'm, when I'm talking about the Great Commission, I always like asking the question in the very first sentence of the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What is the operative verb in that sentence? I, I ask that question quite often. Everybody says go, right? How many of you say, think it's go? Okay, yeah. I used to think that for a long time because that's what we're taught. Jesus told us to go. Let me suggest to you something else. And hear me out. Jesus never told his disciples to go. He told them to make disciples. The operative verb there is make disciples. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Because I stumbled across this after taking New Testament Greek at Biola. I began reading the the original Greek, and I, I realized in the Great Commission, the word that's translated go is not in verb form. It's in participle form. What's a participle? A participle is an action that's already underway. Participles in English typically end in I-N-G. We have two other participles in the Great Commission. Baptizing. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The verb form would be baptized. And teaching. Teaching is also a participle. Properly translated, the word that's translated go would be translated going. Or while you are going, make disciples along the way. What's the implication here? Jesus never told his disciples to go. He assumed they would already be doing that. He simply told them to make disciples along the way. If you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, he expects you to be going. He expects you to be fulfilling the work of an evangelist. If you're not, you're simply disobedient, and there is no other option. I know this is convicting but your mission field starts the moment you walk out those doors. There's a world out there hurting and dying and being misled by the enemy, being misled by Satan himself. And we're to do the work of an evangelist if we consider ourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ, he expects that of us. Number three, what's the third thing we should be doing? We need to be a watchman on the wall. Turn over to Ezekiel, chapter 33, because I want you to read this for yourself. Ezekiel, chapter 33. It's biblical to warn others of the coming peril that's coming upon them so that they can take the necessary actions to make a correction before they actually see that peril, before they see that peril come to fruition. If a bridge is out ahead on the roadway, you would expect the highway department to kind of put a warning sign, right? Bridge out ahead, don't go there. If you continue down the road, you're, you do so at your own peril. We're to sound the warning about false gospels. We're to sound the warning of people who are headed down the wrong way, who are headed toward a path of destruction and eternity in hell. We're to be watchmen on the wall. What's Ezekiel... The prophet Ezekiel say, chapter thirty-three, beginning with verse one. He says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he didn't take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. Verse 6, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. In other words... If we see the coming peril to somebody and we have the ability to warn them and we fail to do that, God will hold us accountable. That goes right along with being an evangelist. We need to sound the warning. We need to warn people that they're headed for eternity to hell. Sadly, too many people are just taking a passive position We can't afford to be passive any longer. We need to be active. We need to be preaching the word. We need to be doing doing the work of an evangelist. And we need to be watchmen on the wall, sounding the warning to a world that is headed in the wrong direction. Remember what I said earlier. While the church is waiting for Jesus to come down, he's waiting for the church to stand up. It's time to stand up. Are you with me? Thank you. Let's pray, Father, our hearts go out to those who have been deceived by the enemy, who have been blinded by the enemy, who are headed down a path of peril. Muslims and non-Muslims alike. Lord, the times are getting evil, the times are getting wicked. The deception of the enemy is growing daily by leaps and bounds. And we, your children, have the answer that the world needs. Give us the courage, give us the boldness to take a stand, to open our mouths, to proclaim your name, to proclaim your gospel. For it is the power power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Father, be with us as we go about our business and give us many, many opportunities to declare who you are with boldness and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.
0: Thanks, Joe. Gosh, we need to hear that kind of stuff, don't we? It's not, it's not always easy to hear. You know, there's a part of us that, I was, as he was talking about uh, Islam and how the churches were opening their doors to the Muslims, and there's a part of us that might say, well, isn't that just being neighborly and isn't that just being friendly? And then I quickly remembered the nation Israel and how they failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land and how they began to found themselves in compromise with the people God had said stay away from those people. You know, not that we don't love them, not that we don't minister to them, but we don't accept this common ground. We're going to be believers who stand on the Bible and the God of the Bible and that alone. And, uh, and let's go make disciples. That's the, that's the mission for our church, make disciples. That's what, that's what we're here for. So, so let's do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to hear uh, these words, Lord. And I pray that, that, that make disciples, that, that phrase rings true in our hearts. Lord, we don't have to necessarily go anywhere. It's just while we're going through everyday life. So, Father, would you show us those people? Would you bring those people across our path that we can make disciples of? Would you give us, you know, may we not be weird for you, may we not be odd for God or any kind of craziness. May we just minister to those people that you bring us. Friends, families, neighbors, coworkers, relatives, Lord, whoever it is that you bring across our path, may we may we be first affected by the gospel ourselves, and then may we share that what what it's done in our life with those people that we run into on a daily basis. Lord, may we not forget that you are in control and that you knew all of this would happen and it's part of your plan unfolding, that you are still seated in heavens, and we are waiting patiently for your return, Lord, as we eagerly look at the signs unfolding. We know that your hand is upon us. May you lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.